0: Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. Today's episode covers the Straight Story as part of my Long Road Home series. Uh, this is a season of three episodes covering films that, yes, do have a theme of a road running through them. Uh, for previous film was Lost Highway, obviously, and this movie is, you know, the road movie to end all road movies, uh, in part because of how long it takes and. Then the next film is a uh, more of a stationary film, but there's a, a prominent road running through the town it's set in. But actually, the more uniting theme to all of this, uh, at least of the subtext, is that they all involve Mary Sweeney, who was David Lynch's collaborator for many years, and his editor, his producer, and on this film, uh, the writer and the originator of the project, which is interesting not something that usually happened with him. He usually got the projects going and certainly contributed to the screenplay, but this was an exception. So we'll talk all about that in here. And uh, before we get to that, just a quick update. Since my previous Twin Peaks Cinema podcast, I put out an episode on my Lost in the Movies feed on Under the Skin, the uh, sci-fi film from uh, the early 2010s. And there's a Patreon component to that where I talk about the book and the differences between film and books. You can check that out too. But uh, the public part uh, just went up a couple weeks ago on that feed. So you can check that out. Links will be in the show notes. I paused the Twin Peaks character series, uh, just have some kind of status updates on that and did organize stuff into a separate directory. But uh, this Twin Peaks uh, series where I would be uh, discussing a different character every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I just needed to... uh, Put it on hold for the moment so I could get ahead on some other projects, uh, which will be coming soon. But more on that later. Uh, Now let's get into the straight story. When my kids were real little, I used to play a game with them. I'd give each one of them a stick, and I'd say, you break that. Of course they could, real easy. Then I'd say, tie them sticks in a bundle, try to break that. Of course they couldn't. Then I'd say, that bundle, that's family. Rose, darling, I've got to go see Lyle. I'm a netto with Alvin, and he's driving his lawnmower. What are you setting out to do here? Alvin, you're gonna get blown right off the road! The Straight Story was Lynch's comeback film, 1999 this put him back on the critical map uh really just the critical map it was not big at the box office but lost highway had it had gotten some attention from i think more scholars and academics and like film people kind of outside of the uh, critical establishment more uh among actual like day-to-day critics i think siskel and ebert gave it two thumbs down which lynch told the uh, advertisers to put right on the poster. (laughs) Two great reasons to go see Lost Highway. Uh, But Straight Story was beloved even by Roger Ebert. Uh, This was the first, I think, the first Lynch film he gave a good review to. So uh, far and wide, it was really appreciated. It was was very well respected at the Cannes Film Festival, where he'd been booed earlier for Fire Walk With Me. And so this was... it, It was almost a way of Lynch doing penance, because he'd been castigated for being so outlandish and so ultra and so uh, provocative for the sake of being provocative, is is how people saw him, which all, of course, is completely unfair and untrue. And the irony is, I don't think Lynch was doing this film for that reason at all. It was just a screenplay that uh, his companion of the time, Mary Sweeney, had written he had no interest in doing it, and then he read the screenplay, fell in love with it, and uh, it became his next project. I think Sweeney may have had some mind on the on the fact that people weren't appreciating his talents, and uh, I'm sure she wanted him to do it anyways, but that gave an extra impetus to it. But I think Lynch himself just saw a project he liked and did it, and it happened to finally coincide with the zeitgeist again after almost a decade of... Uh, of being pushed, sort of pushed aside. So the film itself is a true story. It's about a man who drives his tractor across country to find his brother, uh, well, to see his brother. His brother's not lost, but his brother has had a stroke, and uh, he wants to make up with him because they've they've fought in the past. And uh, the news stories of the time treat this as kind of a cheeky, amusing event. And uh, the film has some fun with it there's a there is a i wouldn't say a lightheartedness but a good spiritedness about the film and an amusement at uh, alvin a knowing amusement that he sometimes shares in i think but it is a serious film and it's a serious film in an unusual way for lynch being g-rated being made by disney which is the first thing that uh, other than a guy rides a tractor across country that's probably the first thing people hear about it. in fact there's a story that One woman came out of the theater and uh, somebody overheard her saying, wow, can you believe there's two big directors named David Lynch? Who would have thought? Because she just couldn't imagine that this was the same David Lynch that made all those other films. And it's interesting to look at this in relation to Twin Peaks. They're not at opposite extremes. In fact, that's one of the things we're going to talk about, the fact that Uh, Twin Peaks shares some basic intrinsic qualities with the straight story, including a kind of a toe into the mainstream uh, more than Lynch sometimes dips. But at the same time, they are very different works in that uh, Twin Peaks came to epitomize what people, uh, what sort of your normie person would think of David Lynch. Oh, he's that guy who does the weird thing with the dwarves talking funny and the Red Room and the girl dancing sultry in the diner and everything's a little arch and ironic and winking at you, which, again, isn't necessarily how he saw, but how it was taken versus Straight Story, which is the sincere, earnest, good hearted family film. It's not risque. It's not vulgar. It's not uh, it's 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 not playing with postmodern pastiche or anything like that. So in that sense, the two seem worlds apart, I think, from the, the public perception angle. But there's a lot that's Lynchian in this film. I mean, it opens with a shot of uh, the star field. And if you notice, the stars on screen are moving very slowly, which very nicely sets up the tempo of this film, in which this guy is slowly crawling along on his tractor. There's these shots of like a grain elevator. So even in this rural landscape lynch finds a kind of an industrial element to focus on with the humming sound very reminiscent of something like blue velvet or eraser head in fact the opening of this film at a glance bears the most resemblance to blue velvet we have these shots of these overhead shots swooping through the neighborhood and settling down on this nice quiet little home with a big patch of front lawn and a lady sunbathing in the uh in the area between the two houses somebody leaving with grocery bags and it's just this nice warm homespun domestic scene and everything we've seen in Lynch uh prepares us to expect a darkness and a, a sort of a sick humor or something to infiltrate this all of a sudden and uh, that doesn't quite happen although it is revealed that a character inside has fallen down and hurt himself, uh, hurt himself eventually. So there is that. But I remember watching this film with my dad and within a minute watching this sequence without even saying why, but we both knew exactly what he's talking about. That he's like, oh, this is very Lynchian actually. <laughs> and it does have that uh, feel to it. But as far as Twin Peaks goes, this opening is interesting in two very different, in fact, uh almost polar opposite ways, and there's a lot of that polarity in this film and its relationship to Twin Peaks, where at times it really evokes the earliest of Twin Peaks, and at times it really evokes the latest of Twin Peaks, the Twin Peaks that came out 18 years after this film. So first of all, the narrative structure of this opening really resembles the pilot. We have a view of this location, this place, these shots of nature, and of the residences of the people and uh the the kind of combination of of these elements and then we have this home the characters going about their day somebody walking out to to sort of greet the day or the grocery bags rather than a fishing pole somebody else is sort of in the middle snacking on something and uh so you have this daily routine being established we're watching everybody go about their their normal daily business in an ordinary small town and then something's going to change we hear the fall inside and then we have people looking for somebody so just as the characters are looking for laura and twin peaks in that case after they've uh after we've in the audience have seen her body in this case we haven't met alvin yet but people at the bar are saying i'm gonna go look for him they're coming they're asking the neighbor have you seen alvin everybody's kind of asking around, and finally they go in, and there he is, lying on the ground on his back. He's fallen down, and he's a little too ashamed to tell anybody that's happened, so he's just lying there, waiting to be discovered, or hoping maybe he gets a second wind and can stand up. And so that is this film's equivalent of the finding of the of Laura Palmer's body on the beach. Again, this is a G-rated film, so there's that difference there. But there's also something else in Twin Peaks this resembles which is the discovery of a main character lying on the floor of a house by somebody else who's shocked. Like, how'd you get down there? I mean, I'm talking, of course, of Dougie Cooper being found on the floor of the tract house in uh, Las Vegas in, in part three of the return in season three. So this, I, and that was the idea that gave birth to that season of Twin Peaks and it was actually Mark Frost's idea interestingly enough but Lynch said that was there was something there that clicked with him and maybe it was the memory of the straight story because that is so remarkably similar now i don't think frost said necessarily that he was found on the floor of the of the house i think uh it was just the idea that cooper was in that house but the way Lynch delivers it, you know, he comes in through the through the plug and there he is lying there and he's not very, well, he's not mobile in that moment. He's not very talkative and the other characters freaking out about him. What are you doing down there? Kind of doing all the talking and he's not really giving them too much. So <laughs> that only occurred to me this time watching it. And I was amused because in so many ways, Dougie and uh, or Dougie Cooper and Alvin are so uh, different. They're such different types of characters, and yet there is that similarity. I mean, Cooper and uh, Cooper Dougie in a lot of ways resembles an old person who's kind of in declining, in his case more in declining mental than in declining physical uh, uh, state. There is that feeling of him as as somebody kind of losing their faculties, and uh, both characters are of course on this journey. And uh, Dougie's case, it's a very, there's no real intent there. He's just kind of wandering through, and other people are helping him along the way. Uh, with Alvin, he is helped by other people along the way, but he's very stubborn. He's very individualist, and he himself is very much the guide of his own journey. He he is his Dougie, and he is his Mike, so to speak. Uh, something else that struck me early in the film, uh, in relation more to the pilot in this case, was when they hear the news about Lyle having the stroke, they're watching a lightning storm and uh, the phone rings. There's an already an uneasiness because of the way it's shot with the rain reflected on their faces and the lightning flashes punctuating the scene. And uh, the daughter, played by Sissy Spacek, uh, goes into the other room, Rose is her name, and she picks up the phone. She says, "Oh, oh no, what happened or something? And then we see the lightning strike and we see Alvin realize something terrible has happened without hearing what it was and just threw that energy on the phone. And that, of course, is so evocative of the pilot, the way Lynch delivers this news. So you can see, and I'd be interested also to to sort of read the script of this and see what little tweaks he made. Because for the most part, he's, I, my understanding is he stuck pretty closely to what Mary Sweeney wrote. I know he did change the scene where Alvin goes over the bridge. Uh, there was supposed to be a big crowd cheering him on, which was how it happened in real life but he uh, modified to have this quiet moment where he's kind of staring and reflective as he rides his tractor across the Mississippi so so that was one thing he changed but i wonder with things like this did he with the discovery of the him lying on the floor with the phone ringing and delivering the news in that way and him sitting there reacting certainly the way he shot it is very lynchian but he, even did he modify or tweak the action and he may not have i mean Mary Sweeney may have just had a similar sensibility. She may have been thinking of him when he wrote it, even though he was not attached until after the whole script was written. Uh, who knows? But it's it's an int- it doesn't necessarily matter why it, it matches that way. It's just interesting to look at sometimes. So something else about uh, the... The Alvin as a character and, and uh, the different versions of Cooper, I suppose. Uh, he also, I mean, in terms of his action throughout, he actually resembles Mr. C the most. Because Mr. C is driving across country to reach this destination slowly, methodically, uh, solitary most of the time by himself. He is with Ray at certain points. He's with his son Richard at certain points. But a lot of the time he's alone just driving his own way. So that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And then as far as Cooper, the Cooper we know and love from the original Twin Peaks, I think Alvin has, uh, he has Cooper's sort of wisdom and his sense of authority. I think most, uh, most of the scene where he is talking to the two mechanics and wheedling them down to a price he can afford because he knows every little bit and piece of what they've used and how much it should be. And, if their labor is going overboard because they're fighting all the time and, and just kind of playing it like that reminds me both of uh Cooper and also of Sam Stanley in firewalking fire, uh, fire walk with me knowing the price of every item of furniture and every room that he goes into in the, in a deer meadow. Although of course, in that case it's of no real use to anybody. Unlike with Alvin, Alvin's much more practical in that sense. And, uh, but but he does have those those calculations at hand another person that alvin or another i guess journey that alvin's uh a uh, trek reminds me of is is jerry's in season 3 again in a way total opposite in the sense that jerry is frantic, has no idea where he's going, he's just wandering through the woods. But the same sort of bearded figure, white bearded figure, moving through a natural landscape. Again, just a sort of a fun connection there. And of course, Jerry and Ben are probably the most prominent brothers in Twin Peaks. This is a film about brothers. Um, I don't see much of a resemblance there with those characters just because, uh, well, putting aside their, their villainous proclivities... They always seem to get along. They have a certain understanding between them. I think if you're looking at brothers who are fighting and who uh, are are brought to kind of mourn their, or at least one of them is brought to mourn their, the the fissure in their relationship because of mortality and sickness and all that. I mean, honestly, you have to look at the Milford brothers, which is kind of funny to think because they're such goofy characters and seem to have so little to do with Lynch. But really, I mean, those two brothers are the most the 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 most like the what we know of the straight brothers from this film. On a more kind of poignant note, we have Harry and Frank in season three, with Frank constantly checking in on his brother to see how he's doing, something that uh was added more or less last minute because originally Frank was supposed to be Harry. That part was written for Michael Onkin. Now, I don't know how much they changed when the casting was, when they weren't able to do that casting, but eventually they just basically gave, to my understanding, Harry's material to Frank and then added in these calls to Harry to kind of put some, both to connect them and put some distance between the idea that, yes, these were different characters there so that relationship is at the core of straight story but ultimately this is a film about a man alone about a, somebody who really believes he has to get to his destination uh, by himself uh, even though in i mean even to the point of literally when he arrives there it's it's he, he doesn't accept much help along the way put it that way he has to stay with people for a certain time he won't even set foot in their house which is kind of funny um yet he does go twice for uh to a bar, one time for milk and one time for beer. So he has these interesting distinctions in his head. He does ride in a car at one point to get to the bar, although it's notable the car doesn't have a top. So he, he seems like other than the bar, he always has to be outside. He he has to kind of stick to his path. And uh in reality he was towed in the for the last stretch to Lyle's house that was what I read an article I'll link it below in the Washington Post from the time and uh, that was his his final step now in the film it's a little confusing because the tractor pulls up next to him and then he seems to be able to start his own uh, lawnmower after it had I think I keep switching back and forth between tractor and lawnmower but it's imp- it's important it's a lawnmower because a, a tractor is ostensibly going to travel a little more distance have a little more durability I think whereas uh a, a a lawnmower really isn't supposed to do what Alvin does with it, so I should note that distinction. It's a riding lawnmower that looks a little like a small tractor, but it's, it's a lawnmower. This big tractor, this bigger, bigger vehicle pulls up next to his, kind of pauses, and then he's able to start it and go off. And actually, John Thorne, I don't think I included this clip in the archive section, so I'll mention it here. When we all recorded a podcast with Twin Peaks Unwrapped about this film, he noted that it's almost like a guardian angel figure, this this tractor, the big tractor and little little lawnmower, where it's it's like almost... So so he compared it in a way to Fire the this idea of the angels intervening and helping you along. Now, with all that said, though, the reason I brought this in is Alvin does seem to drive there on his own that last stretch. He finally makes it all the way... Doing what he was trying to do all along by himself. That aspect of Alvin's, it reflects not just characters in Twin Peaks and in Lynch's work, but Lynch himself in a certain way. Where he always, he's, you know, he's a very collaborative filmmaker in some ways, but he has his vision. He sticks to his path. And he's very superstitious. There's a story of driving to the Twin Peaks set where he saw some numbers he didn't like on a license plate. So he had to like drive around the block five times till he saw another combination of numbers. Everyone just patiently waited for him on the set. Till he he could uh, feel comfortable getting there, but there is a sense in which he needs to flow with his environment, and that requires being somewhat malleable to the environment, and this is a film all about that. And uh, so, so that aspect of Alvin, I think, is, to the extent it's manifest in Twin Peaks, it's probably more manifest in how Twin Peaks was made, how Lynch would go with certain things that happened, that popped up, how he would struggle, how it would stop and start... I mean, in a way, the straight story, as many of Lynch's late films, could almost, this is a stretch, but it could almost be viewed as a documentary about the making of Twin Peaks. Just in terms of the idea of showing somebody following some project and stumbling as they they follow through on it, but making it to the end there. The other films, the comparison point is maybe a little different. Mulholland Drive, it's almost more obvious because it's about production and, you know, it's it itself had the troubled production. But with Straight Story, I think it's it's more that idea of seeing something to the end. It, it's Lynch's portrait of the art life in a way. And in this case, Alvin's art was, you know, the art of getting from Iowa to Wisconsin on this lawnmower to see his brother and doing it a certain way and sticking to the plan. There's something intangible about the style and sensibility on screen here that just makes it feel fundamentally uh, lynchian even though it, it doesn't bear many of the trademarks of his other films it's the most mary sweeney involved of his movies in the sense that she wrote it produced it edited it this was really her idea her conception when you see her film baraboo that she made about 10 years later you realize like just how much of her sensibility is in this film and yet it's also of, of all the late lynch films i feel like this one is the easiest to relate to Lynch's earlier works, just, I think, because the style isn't overwhelming, because it's telling such a simple story, even though there's a bit of a swoon in these, these uh, superimpositions and these long cross-dissolves that Mary Sweeney does that are similar to, like, Lost High and Mulholland Drive, because the material, the story material, just isn't as chaotic. It feels more elemental in a way that's familiar from, like, Elephant Man or uh, Blue Velvet, or, or some of those earlier films where Lynch is a little more uh, patient with the material, as, as I think he is early in Twin Peaks and even in a way in, in Season 3. So that aspect is interesting there. Obviously, this is a film with many long, long driving scenes. I think that calls to mind immediately for me watching it now, Part 18, with those long sequences of uh, Cooper driving with Diane, driving by himself driving with Carrie, that long nine-minute sequence where they're just driving and not saying anything, a kind of the anti-straight story in the sense that we don't have these beautiful natural shots. It's just totally dark, pitch black, a car hurtling through the darkness, but in the sense that they're just slowly, silently making this voyage, that aspect of it feels quite a straight story. And then, of course, we have the arrival at the destination, and there's Several examples of that. Actually, the shot of him kind of pulling in and walking to the little shack door reminds me of uh, Richard arriving at Marion's for a very different purpose in Part 10, where he's trying to kill her to uh, cover up a crime he committed. In this film, of course, it's really the spiritual opposite of that. But then there's also Cooper arriving at Carrie's, where he does find who he's looking for, just as Alvin does here, although it's in that case it's not quite the way he was expecting it. And then, of course, the voyage that, that they make in the end, their long drive to arrive from Texas all the way up to Washington, very long drive, and they get there and the person is not who they're expecting. So you have this perfect kind of reflection here of the voyage done correctly for the right reasons with the right intent and it pays off in the straight story despite all the stumbles along the way. And then this other odyssey that somehow is somewhere corrupted or twisted something's not right even the wanting to go there doesn't quite make sense why would he want to bring an adult laura palmer with another name to her parents where she was abused in this house it just it's it's off the whole thing is off and so those two endings exist in a perfectly fascinating parallel i think both straight story and twin peaks are works that exist inside of certain conventions on straight story there are conventions on screen that alvin himself is obeying as i discussed but also just the convention of making this movie that's based on a true story that you know it was not a disney film until it was distributed so it didn't have to be this g-rated family thing but that was what the script that was kind of the wholesome quality of the script that lynch wanted to stay true to so there was something there That was confining him in a way. and Martha Nockmson has talked about this in terms of decoherence, which is a quantum physics term that I'm probably slaughtering the meaning of somewhat, but it has to do with this idea. Yes, the universe is chaotic and and crazy and less predictable than Newtonian physics would have it, but under certain conditions, elements will react as if the universe had a certain newtonian order and i'd have to read her chapter on straight story again and see how she delves into this in detail but just that idea in the abstract fascinates me of lynch the surrealist sticking to this path and there being this kind of tightrope that he's walking where there are all these other options but he stays on it and uh he actually lynch himself has called Straight Story his most experimental film and I think that's worth considering in that sense where he was limiting his options and holding himself in check to do that and I love that aspect of it you know for somebody who is so experimental their most straightforward film is itself the experiment for them so let's see if there's there's a little more I wanted to discuss with with that idea Um, I guess how it relates to Twin Peaks, of course, and then we'll just get into the last bit, which is more just kind of listing off little things I noticed that were fun connections, meaningful or otherwise, but in terms of that sticking to the convention with Twin Peaks, you have the conventions of television, you have the episodic structure. You have the fact that other people were writing a story that Lynch then had to cohere to. I think it's worth noting that he said before Straight Story, Firewalk With Me had been his most experimental film. And I think in that case too, even though that is a crazy avant-garde film in a lot of ways, he's using it in the same sense as he used it with Straight Story. The idea of sticking to a narrower path because you're constrained by this or that element and having to follow that and that producing its own fruitful creativity. So in twin peaks i think he probably less successfully sticks to the path which is you know twin peaks is all the better for it but uh, he, uh, he he is not able to be quite as faithful to this to 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 following this trail as either the film straight story is or alvin is within the straight story um, and yet he keeps kind of bouncing back to it in the work of Twin Peaks. Just want to go through quickly and uh, note some other similarities I noticed here. Uh, I uh, As soon as Alvin was spraying the WD-40 on his uh, machine as he's getting the lawnmower ready to link up to this big um, kind of box wooden, wooden trailer that he's built and attaches and takes and sleeps in and stores things in as soon as he was spraying that on there i just immediately thought of doctor amp in his own yard spraying all the gold shovels these two assembling projects together and i think the common link there is just lynch himself this is you know his his art life dream of building things and using things and for all of his surrealist touches he's also a very practical utilitarian person and so he loves that 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 kind of combination of the the art and the craft there uh, one idea that also occurred to me, speaking of tools, as soon as Alvin grabbed, uh, or bought the grabber at the, uh, at the hardware store, gets, haggles the guy and gets him to give him his grabber, and he holds it up with pride and holds it out so he can reach things now, I just thought, oh, there's the evolution of the arm. There's one character, or one actor from Twin Peaks in this, two actually, because Harry Dean Stanton, of course, is Lyle in the end of the film. And uh, he is, you know, Carl Rodden Twin Peaks. But in terms of the series, the original series, we have Big Ed, uh, uh, Everett McGill, playing the character of Tom, who is selling the John Deere uh, equipment that uh, Alvin buys. And there's a nice scene with him. He comes off very much similar to, to Ed, uh, similar sort of demeanor, similar delivery, a guy who knows his machines, is a good good guy you can trust with a handshake and all of that really captures that quality beautifully. I think this was his last role for 18 years until he returned for uh, The Return. And one thing to note about these green John Deere machines specifically is that in a Mad Men episode, there's a character, well, there's a pretty outrageous scene that I won't spoil that involves driving a John Deere, I think it is a tractor in that case, or or maybe it's a lawnmower, riding lawnmower, but some sort of John Deere equipment around like a Manhattan advertising office. And that episode was interestingly directed by Leslie Linka Glatter, who is one of the big Twin Peaks directors. So I don't know if that was her tip of the hat. I mean, it wasn't. She didn't write the script. (laughs) It's fun to think of it in relation to the Lynchverse. There's also use of fire throughout the film. There's a campfire that Alvin sits around with a young woman who some have seen similarities to with Laura Palmer. She's a runaway who's pregnant and in trouble with her family. That fire uh, that they're sitting around As they're staring into it, he talks about how his daughter lost her children because there was uh, an accident, somebody else was watching them, there was a fire, and she got blamed for it, and so the kids were taken away. So this idea that's always in Lynch of the fire as this ominous uh, symbol laden with doom. And even as he's talking about that, we see a shot of, uh, of... Rose staring at her reflection in the window which is very reminiscent of Laura staring at her reflection in the roadhouse right after the log lady has told her about you know this once this fire starts it's hard to stop and all of that Uh, there's a football throwing guy amongst all these bicyclists who uh, pass Alvin and are hanging out with him later at their camp they're all pretty young guys and they're want to know all they're picking his brain about what it's like to be old he has a funny line where he says worst part of being old is remembering when you were young which you can take two ways you can see it as him saying i look back on my youth and my health and my fitness and i have to think about how i used to be that way or you could look at it as him saying man i have to remember how dumb how young and dumb i was as he kind of glares at this other guy so the reason i bring that up is the guy who asks him yeah what what's what's uh, the toughest part about being old alvin he says it in this kind of glib way and he's dressed, you know, that little bit of the 90s uh Gen Xer fashion or whatever. And uh he's he actually says the line, "Oh, that's cool, man, but, you know, what about this?" And it reminded me so much of the heavy metal dude that Windermere puts in the pond. So there's that. Uh, there's a witnessing of a traffic accident in this where the lady hits the deer and Alvin is staring at it, a person shouting in outrage, which happens several times in Twin Peaks. It happens with Mike shouting at uh, Laura and Leland and firewalk with me at that intersection, but it also uh, happens with the lady who's honking her horn and yelling at Bobby in uh, part 11 with the, the kid who throws up in the car. And that, that lady reminds me so much of this, of the deer lady in Straight Story. And then, of course, uh, Alvin takes the antlers and puts them on his, uh, from the dead deer, puts them on his trailer as an ornament, which is a very peaksy and motif, all of those animal uh heads and antlers around and then there are just beautiful shots of the fog in the trees very different trees this is maybe the only midwestern lynch film i want to say uh everything else seems to take place in the west or the east that i can think of yeah i can't think of any other midwestern uh lynch lynchian uh films hmm, interesting never thought of that before and then finally the last thing i wanted to mention is a good note to end on is there's a heart to heart in a cemetery where A preacher comes out and finds uh, Alvin sitting out there camping out amongst this old graveyard where all these pioneers are buried. And they have a conversation out there, which reminds me of uh, Dr. Jacoby speaking with Cooper in the cemetery after uh, Laura's death at night, burying his soul, talking about how he's been bad to his patients and Laura helped him. And here we have Alvin Really giving more of the story of his brother to this guy than he's given to anyone else in the film yet. A nice moment there of trying to find a way forward in life surrounded by reminders of death. And there's a lot of that in this film generally, I think. Tonight, when I'm recording this, this is the night of the Oscars. And Anthony Hopkins uh, just won an Oscar for his part in The Father. And he is now the oldest Oscar winner. And he was also the oldest Oscar nominee. And before he held that title, that record, uh, for nominee at least, was held by Richard Farnsworth, who uh, plays the lead in The Straight Story, plays Alvin Strait, wonderful performance, um, died tragically a year later. He was already not well at the time of the shooting. And uh, he was the oldest actor ever to be nominated for Best Actor until Hopkins this year. That's it for this episode Uh, or at least the proper review part of this episode, but I do have some bonus stuff for you here. So one is a reflection section I recorded for Patreon around the same time that I recorded the review, the discussion that you just heard, and uh, in this I compare a Twin Peaks subplot to a uh, David Lynch film. This was a sort of recurring thing I would do, and I did that in this case obviously with a straight story, and a unusual season two storyline. And I talk a lot about that storyline before I get to the film. So there's, you know, bear with me here, but uh, we are going to draw a comparison at the end of this discussion to the uh, straight story. And I thought I would include the whole section here for that reason. For the storyline, I want to discuss this episode. It's Ben's civil war breakdown. Episode 20 is where it really goes into full swing. Episode 19 is where it first emerges, but it's little by little getting shaped like we see Ben playing with the figurines near the end of the episode, I think. And he's holding out a sword to uh, Bobby. At the beginning, he's still in like a feng shui mode where he's trying to pile all the chairs on top of the desk. So he's not in the Civil War uh, headspace yet. But by episode 20, he's he's there full on. And for the next few episodes, he will be. He's got dirt all over the floor, he's, uh, Audrey's frightened enough to call in other people, they'll come in in the next episode, and and uh, you get that scene with Catherine coming in and visiting him, and he's still kind of cognizant of who she is at that point, so he's not fully, he's like at once Ben and at, and uh, Robert E. Lee, basically. There's a quick summary of what this story is, is after getting arrested and losing his business, Ben suffers a mental collapse, losing himself in a fantasy of winning the Civil War as a Confederate general with which his family members and employees must play along if they hope to pull him back to reality. So there's this uh, idea here that the point of, I guess, analogy or whatever Ben needs to reverse a historic loss, which was the Confederacy losing to the Union, in order to make it feel like he's staging a comeback for himself. It's a pretty strained idea, and we'll talk about why it's even in here in the first place in a moment, but I just want to mention the characters who are involved besides Ben are Audrey, Bobby, Catherine, Jacoby, Jerry, and uh, Johnny— it lasts from episodes 19 through 22 so really only four episodes which for some of these mid-season plots is not that long and uh it begins as i said well well ben is already kind of at his lowest point and then little by little it sneaks in suddenly he's wearing the civil war the gray jacket he's Got the sword. He's got these figurines. Then suddenly, he's talking like he's fully in it. By the time we get to the Diane Keaton directed episode, now he has got props. He's got huge stage paint everywhere. Everyone's wearing costumes around him. He's no longer at all Ben Horn. Like there's nothing like that scene with Catherine where he's, oh, Catherine. Like he he would have some other figure for her, like as a stand-in in his mind if she came in at this point. So he's totally gone in the delusion. And Dr. Jacoby has encouraged this approach, saying that. As he uh, inhabits this character, he'll get to purge himself, and just letting him play it out isn't working, so finally they're like, let's just stage the surrender and get this over with. So they do. They restage the Appomattox Courthouse surrender and turn it into now actually the Confederacy is accepting the surrender of the Union, and then Ben collapses. Sure enough, he wakes up, uh, oh I had a strange dream, little Wizard of Oz quote there as he recognizes the people were there and they're all happy to see him again. So much to sort of tease out here and I've done a lot of that actually in my Lost in Twin Peaks podcast. I'll link up a couple episodes below including episode 20, the one that you know I'm using as the jumping off point here because in that one I have a whole like five minute section where I just dig into the mythos of the Civil War and particularly the Confederacy and the Lost Cause and why this is such a trope kind of throughout U.S. history that that, and why it was something they latched onto at this time. And that answer is simple. It was the Ken Burns documentary, The Civil War. That's why the writers wanted to go in this direction. They were obsessed with the show. And this was a point in the series, as we've talked about with Dick and Jean, where they're just kind of like treating Twin Peaks as a big circus tent that they can kind of bring anything they want into that's interesting. And I think Frost, in this case, was really encouraging this. And, you know, he's seen as the more grounded partner at times. But this was a storyline that was very much Frost-driven. He takes credit or blame or whatever you want to assign to for it in uh, the Twin Peaks Reflections book, the oral history with, with Brad Dukes. And he says the storyline interests him, and I point out... In my video, I say that it bears a lot of Frostian hallmarks. It's got an obsession with costume, which you also see with Wyndham Earle. And in the book List of Seven, it's got uh, oratory that Ben's always delivering a fascination with history. Uh, it circulates around a character's psychological struggles. Uh, again, all of this, uh, it featured throughout his novels, all of it featured in the Wyndham Earl storyline. There was another element, too. Now I can't even remember what it was. It just feels like a very frost idea, but the execution of it is not that compelling. Um, It seems like something he kind of stayed away from. I think this was when he was starting pre-production, the uh, film Storyville that he would direct eventually, and Peyton was largely running the show. So it, it doesn't feel like it has a clever or even particularly competent arc. It's just, here's Ben doing Civil War stuff, now it's over. And you can enjoy it I think mostly for Richard Boehmer's performance because he does bite into it and have fun with it. You do get to see uh, the Rust Tamblin and and Richard Boehmer together reunited singing and dance not dancing, but singing together as they do in West Side Story, which is fun and charming. Kind of unfortunate it's Dixie and they're waving the Confederate flag throughout, but uh, be that as it may. So the Ken Burns documentary at this time was running on PBS. And by I say at this time, I mean when they were writing this episode. Uh, It was long over by the time this went to air, which also adds probably to the sense of, like, why is this going on? Like, they just got caught up in a fad at the time, in a way, and that made it onto screen months later, which kind of shows where they were at in their approach to the show. The Ken Burns documentary is interesting because, and this is something I talked about in the segment, It, in some ways it is, at least for that time, a little bit of a revisionist take on the Civil War in that it does focus much more on the Black experience, how slaves and freed Blacks participated in the war effort, and how they saw it, but it also does still carry on some of the mythos of the Civil War, particularly through the the figure of Shelby Foote, who is one of the commentators and is uh, sort of an apologist in some ways, although I think he would be seen as one of the softer ones in that genre. I think with the writers watching and getting kind of wrapped up in this idea of Robert E. Lee as this noble uh, figure who, you know, fought uh, a for the terrible cause, but with honor and all of that, that's where they come from with Ben. And now I think 30 years later, where the cultural mythos is, that would probably not be a decision that anybody would make as casually as they make it. To have Ben be this figure of bemusement and even charm that we sympathize with in some sense and and see the silliness of, but don't find necessarily offensive in any way. This, this idea of like, oh yeah, he's trying to have the Confederacy win because they lost. That's the big thing about the Confederacy is that they lost rather than that they were what they were actually fighting for, which was slavery. And that brings us actually to, in a weird way, because there's no obvious connection there, to the film that I wanted to compare this storyline to, because I always like to draw a connection to either an episode of The Return or a Peaks spinoff or a Lynch film. And in this case, it's The Straight Story. So Odd Decision, that's a film that's in set in the 90s. It follows a character through the Midwest as he's driving on a lawnmower... To see uh, his brother. So strange fit for this uh, supposed, you know, Southern general, uh, a, a, a Northwestern businessman posing as a Southern general. But there's some interesting ties there. So to start with just the broadest and most superficial, there's a sense of Americana about both the straight story and This particular subplot, this focusing on American history in the case of Twin Peaks, in a way that's unusual for the show, which doesn't usually like to root itself in historical specificity quite as much. That's very much more a Frost thing than a Lynch thing. And uh, this idea, so the the, the reason I bring up all the stuff of the Confederacy is interesting because on the one hand, this period is sort of at the heart of the American mythos. So there's a sense in which the lost cause gallantry of Robert E. Lee and all this is this very deeply American thing, but they're also like the most un-American thing you can think of this idea even putting aside the morality of it and the cause of slavery it's like these are literally the greatest killers of american troops outside of the japanese and the germans in history and literal traitors to the constitution and to the american project so there's that weird ambivalence there where this thing that is deep in the heart of america is also opposed to a certain sense of what america is so that's really a fascinating discussion i think to have it (laughs) on On another occasion, I touch on it a little in the Lost in Twin Peaks episode I mentioned, but worth noting here, and then in Straight Story, you have a more wholesome conception of this idea of the all-American heartland, where it's rural, but it's uh, sort of outside of the zone of these old Civil War battle wounds, where they're traveling from Iowa to Wisconsin. And the landscape that we get also in episode 22, where there's the fields of wheat painted on the walls, I think that more than anything evokes straight story. I'm talking about in episode 22 with the Civil War story when they're doing the surrender scene. That's something that feels like you could almost see Alvin passing by in the background on his, I was going to say his scooter, but no, his lawnmower. <laughs> the characters are dressed in a sort of old-fashioned way, uh, Ben with his Civil War outfit and the hats. Alvin Straight has his, his hat that he wears around. It's got pesos around the rim, which I realized from an article I was reading about the actual character, And then seeing the movie again, the actual person it's based on, I mean, and then seeing the movie again, realizing that's there. So you have this kind of proto-cowboy look in a way, I think. A lot of the Civil War officers either had fought in the West in the Mexican War or would go on to fight, uh, often against Native Americans. Another whole aspect of it we could discuss. But basically, there's th- this sort of quintessential 19th century American image both in terms of the actual visual of it and the concept of it and alvin fits into that in an interesting way in a way that probably a lot of other lynch heroes don't quite more substantially where there's a similarity between these two is the idea of somebody sticking to a perverse and strange routine in order to redeem themselves so in ben's case all of his criminal activity and and Really more his personal humiliation and being arrested for the murder of Laura in being uh, in losing one-eyed jacks and uh, just sinking to this low point uh, he even visits like he he watches a, a some old home movie footage of his family, his father and his mother and his brother when they were all young opening up the great Northern so that you have that nostalgic element there triggering this psychological journey and then with Alvin you have, his brother having a stroke, him, him himself collapsing, this sense of mortality triggering this idea that he's got to go get on his lawnmower and drive for like six weeks to go uh, meet his brother again and, and reconcile. So both of these characters, and this is a very Lynchian idea, even if it was Frost who did this this particular story, this idea of having a strange kind of routine and uh, following it to the logical end. So the form it takes is not very Lynch, but there's something about the idea itself that is. And finally, here is a clip from my journey through Twin Peaks video essay. I did a section on Mary Sweeney and David Lynch. their work together the the position of that in the state of his career and also hers after as well. And uh, in this section, I was playing clips like full intact clips because I wanted to show Mary Sweeney's editing pattern. so you kind of have to let the clip play out for that. Uh, so that you can see where she chooses to cut. And as that was going, I had a sort of spare commentary just on where this film was in their overall collaboration. So uh, you'll hear audio from the film and a few of my comments mixed with that. Even, maybe especially, Lynch's most conventional work of this period serves as a key to the rest. The straight story was a Mary Sweeney project from the beginning, drawing on her own roots in the Midwest and sympathy for the stubborn wisdom of an old man going his own way. To his, and her, surprise, Lynch was drawn to the screenplay and agreed to direct his first and only G-rated family drama. Rose, darling? Rose, I'm gonna go back on the road. I've gotta go see Lyle. But Dad, how are you? Well, I haven't quite got that figured yet. closest fusion and balance between the two collaborators. And of course, I have lots of other work on The Straight Story. It's linked below. Uh, long essays on David Lynch that this features in. And um, podcast appearances. I was on Twin Peaks Unwrapped with John Thorne discussing this this movie as well. And other stuff like that. So check out the show notes for all of that. Now, there's going to be one more episode in Twin Peaks Cinema before I put this Podcast on a hiatus that will probably be permanent, but you know, never say never. Or I guess never say for sure. There are a lot of episodes still on Patreon that I haven't released publicly that I don't have plans to, so I'll have previews for that on this thread. But first, we do have one more full episode coming up in June that will conclude this long road home series. It's a good place to end this, and because it's a film that you're probably not familiar with, I will just you know prepare the ground here, I guess, uh, telling you what it is, not just play an audio clip and have you guess. It's Mary Sweeney's directorial debut after a collaboration with david lynch ended it's called baraboo and it has a lot in common with the straight story actually which we'll discuss there as well so here's a taste of that to take you out and of course please rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts you can support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies and here is a little bit of baraboo i was just wondering uh, about chris going fishing no he's never mentioned that to me well maybe just does want to go fishing with his mom i like it here we like having you